Welcome to the Duke and Duchess podcast. My name is Chad. I'm Liz. And we are here in episode 125, where we will be discussing Gardens of the Moon, chapters 17 through 19 by Steven Erickson. That's right. Our next book club will cover chapters 20 through the epilogue of Gardens of the Moon. We are actually going to finish this book. We're going to finish this book. Dang. We finished a book in less than a year. (laughs) I don't even know if that's accurate, actually. (laughs) I have no idea. I've lost... (laughs) All semblance of time has just kind of disappeared. <laughs> but anyway, that's the other thing, exciting thing we're going to do this episode is we're going to reveal our next project. Yes, stay tuned. All right, so tell them about our spoiler policy. Our spoiler policy is this Chad has not read Gardens of the Moon anything after chapter 19, so we are not going to be spoiling anything after that point. Um, I have read this book. Um, I've read the next book, but we will not be spoiling anything for Chad. We we make no guarantees about Star Wars, Mm-mm. about um, the, the, the last Starfighter. The Sixth Sense. Uh, the Sixth Sense. We won't tell you who Lady Whistledown is, but... We will not talk about WandaVision. <laughs> no other guarantees. No, no guarantees are made. So what did you think of book six, Gardens of the Moon? So I enjoyed it. It's not like... The most amazing book ever, section ever, because it's sort of clearly set up. Yes. Uh, but there's still some cool character stuff that happens. Uh, and also, we get the exciting uh, reveal of a new piece on the chessboard in the middle of Act 3. You know, which I think to me is the big key takeaway from this is all of a sudden we have this huge mysterious new thing Mm -hmm. that pops up right before the end of the book, Mm -hmm. which is obviously going to be consequential in some way. Right. Well, I would like to start us off by reading the, the snapter, the epigraph for book six, which is a poem. And I think there's a lot of good stuff in there kind of foreshadowing and summing up the pieces that are converging at this point in the book. Rumors like tattered flags, wind-snapped and echoing, in the streets below, told the tale of the days upon us. T'was said an eel had slipped ashore, or not one but a thousand, under a jagged moon that might be dead. T'was whispered that a claw scraped slow on the city's cobbles, even as a dragon was seen sailing high, silver and black in the night sky. "'Twas heard, they say, a demon's death cry on the rooftops on a night of blood even as the master's hundred hands lost a hundred daggers to the dark. And t'was rumored then a lady masked, high-born, had offered to unbidden guests a fete to remember." So I just, well, I, I, I love Stephen Erickson's poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, I really think it adds just depth and nuance to his work, to the, the mood of the book. But also this one in particular really kind of gives you a good feel for all of the different pieces that are about to come together. Yeah, I feel very much like the, the narrator in a Shakespeare play has stepped onto the stage and, mm-hmm. you know, behold yes, that our is, play. It's very, yes, it's, it has that, is that the feeling that I it. get. And so, you know, the way that this starts off talking about rumors like tattered flags and rumors have been a a consistent theme, especially in the the Darugistan books. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I just love this image of a rumor as a tattered flag. It really struck me, you know, 
thinking about flags on battlements, which give you the general idea of what's happening in a castle. You know, you can come mm-hmm. up to a castle and maybe I'm overthinking this, but you can see which lord is in residence by the by the banners that are up there. So the idea of kind of comparing that to a rumor. Or, or also, I think, one, I don't think you're overthinking it. Um, I think you're, I think you're meant to think it through at this level. Um, but I would, I would say that I think the argument you make is more compelling if you think about the flags on a battle map. Mm, so, yeah. oh, this army is in this area. This mm-hmm. one's coming up from this direction. But the, but again, the reality is when you look at that battle map, it's, it's still ultimately just, it's not the true story. Mm-hmm. And so then the poem goes on to bring up the eel, which you're kind of like at this point, I'm like, oh, I hadn't thought about the eel in a in a couple of chapters or and it, it again raises the question of what part is he going to play and what we are like, oh, that guy circle breaker is still kind of out there kicking in the wind under a jagged moon that might be dead. And that brings mm. what's going on up there with with the, with the yeah. tist Andy. Sorry, I'm really yeah. trying hard not to say tits Andy. Tits Andy. <laughs> That was my nickname in college. Uh, it brings up the claw and it just, the whole thing just really um, emphasizes the number of powers that are coming together in this That's city. That's true. I mean, in this city that is literally built on top of pockets of explosive, explosive gas. natural gas. I mean, you talk about the eel and not having thought about it for a while. I mean, what's the one defining quality of an eel? Slimy? Yeah. Right. <laughs> Yeah, you can't get your hands on it. Delicious on a bed of rice. <laughs> <laughs> have you ever caught an eel? I have never tried to catch an eel, but I probably would not be able to. I have never tried to catch an eel, but I have caught several eels by accident, and they are very difficult to get off the hook. Mm-hmm. They are super slimy and hard to wrestle and get your hands around. Gross. Yeah, I have a lot to say about the eel. I have a lot to say about eels generally. (laughs) You do, actually. Surprisingly. (laughs) Surprisingly. Anyway. Anyway, um, we also have a a snapter for, I'm not going to read every snapter in this entire book that we're reading, but the one before. I mean, you can. (laughs) It's your podcast. You can do whatever you want. The one before chapter 17, um, I, I thought was kind of worthy of noting as well. And it goes like this. Few can see the dark hand holding aloft the splinter or the notched chains fated to be heard before death's rattle. But hark the wheel of minions and victims who moan the Lord's name in the dark heart of moon spawn. And that is by Silver Fox. It's just a reminder that Animander Rake is carrying a portal to the motherfucking realm of darkness on his back. You Everywhere know? he goes. Yeah. Just in case you had forgotten. Mm-hmm. What a bad donkey he is. And that all leads us up to chapter 17. Wherein, Baruch and Anamander Rake debrief each other on recent events. They got 99 problems, but an unconscious Mamo, who also happens to be a high priest of the Worm of Autumn, ain't one. Wait. (laughs) Meanwhile, Circle Breaker passes on a warning from the eel to Ralic and Marilio. Councilman Turban Orr has put a hit out on their friend Call. The eel's agents scoop up Crocus and the newly named Absalar and take them into hiding. Ralic heads out to hunt Ocelot, the head of his assassin's guild, in order to protect Call. 
I got 99 problems. Yeah. That's a lot of problems. You do have a lot of problems. <laughs> I mean, but we're not getting into that on this podcast. That's just a lot of problems. We can talk it through later if you need okay, to. All right, all right. So the first thing that I noted here is in the conversation with Ralic and Circle Breaker, he Ralic talks about not liking to be wished good luck. And that stuck out to me. I bet you noted the same thing. That's my first comment. You know, it's such Luck's kind of a could just free. be a a cliche kind of throwaway line from a hardened assassin, but like, oh no, in this actually the god of luck is kind of a dick. And uh, <laughs> yeah, right, you don't right. you don't want them around. Well, also, just me personally, I love this saying, and I love that sort of thought. And I think how how would it be to live in a world where luck was a double edged sword, you know, a two sided coin, as it is, you know, very clearly, you know, manifest in this world that you know luck will save your ass or absolutely destroy tens of thousands of lives. Um, you know, but if it's, if luck had that sort of personal manifestation in a world, how much different would we consider it? Whereas in our world, it's just, you know, luck is always perceived in sort of a positive light. Mm -hmm. It's just sort of, not that people are, aren't aware of the concept of bad luck, but when we think of it, we think when we think of the personification of luck, it's the positive side of it. It's lady Mm -hmm. luck, you know, Mm -hmm. that is such a good point. And Opon really is just a a brilliant personification of that. Mm Mm-hmm. And I love it just, you know, for like what it means, you know, sort of in my life. And it's like a lesson I wish I can impart to our kids or could go back and impart to my younger self that like, sure, luck is a factor. But the reality is, is that people who get ahead or do well or have great success in life almost always work their asses off to get it. This podcast brought to you by Dad Talks. <laughs> <laughs> now listen, 10 and 2, check your mirrors every 7 to 10 <laughs> seconds. Back to the book. So my point about the conversation with Rollick and Circle, Circle Breaker is sort of this. When he first sees him, we have this phrase. He almost had to take a second look. So nondescript was he. Mm-hmm. And then like... Four or five sentences later, there was something solid about this person, a kind of assurance that was calming. Rollick felt himself relaxing in spite of his habitual caution. So at this point, Circle Breaker has not said a single word. Mm -hmm. His initial impression was so nondescript that he had to take a second look. And before Rollick has even opened his mouth, suddenly like this you know, halo of assurance has shone down upon Circle Breaker and Rollick's like, I feel like talking to this man. He's mm-hmm. just a good listener. You know, how can you look at that and not think that Krupp is somehow involved mm, in very good point. casting some sort of very subtle charm suggestion types of spells, you know, on the situation? Yeah, that is a really good point. I had not thought about it that much, but especially what we've seen is possible in this world as far as sorcery. Yeah. There's no reason to think that couldn't be true. Absolutely. Well, also I think, and this is one of the things I like the most about Steven Erickson's writing so far, is this idea that he will have people actively casting spells and doing things that manipulate the story 
but he will not overtly say any of it. it mm-hmm. You'll have to pick up on it on very, very subtle mm-hmm. context clues. You know, and I don't know definitively that this is one of those situations, but it reads to me like it is. Mm-hmm. But Circle Breaker actually has some important news for Rollick. Yes. Yeah, so Circle Breaker tells Rollick that uh, there's been a, a contract has been put out on Call's life. And we saw, you know, the beginnings of that in the conversations that we witnessed between uh, Lady Simtal and Turban Orr. But Turban Orr has finally pulled the trigger on making, uh, taking care of Call permanently. And the person who accepted the contract was none other than the biggest, the baddest member of the Assassin's Guild that Rollick is part of, his boss, Ocelot. Ocelot. Assassin versus Assassin. Your mission. Ding, 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 ding. Stop Ocelot from assassinating Lord Call. This is definitely like a level in Metal Gear. Uh, oh, yeah. Like the video game. Oh, yeah. It's like a, it's like a, it's like a version of that old comic Spy versus Spy, but if like it was written by Pantera. <laughs> it doesn't mean a lot to me, but I'm willing to bet someone out there is going, yeah. No, I doubt it. <laughs> Please message us if you're that guy. I did have somebody message me recently, and I wish I, I, I if I had if I had it available, I would I would call you out by name. Uh, but somebody who caught like a Tom Waits joke that I made in like episode seven, <laughs> <laughs> like they, they got back to me like, I just want you to know, please I'm, message I'm Chad the one person who caught catch that. Those. Yes, sweet. <laughs> it made me very happy. So one more thing uh, in this sort of scene with Circle Breaker before we uh, before we move on. So he leaves, and then we have. Uh, one of the characters come up and say, everybody's still breathing? And her name uh, is impossible to pronounce. It's uh, Irolita? Yeah, Irolita. Ir- my God, that is... I mean, we've put like 47 checks in the Steven Erickson is awesome at naming people bucket. I'm going to put one check in the what the fuck were you thinking <laughs> bucket. But it's bounced out by Meese. Come on, that's a great name. Iralita, that's a... Iralita jumps a little lighter. Iralita comes sit by my fire. Anyway, um, so that was the first uh, note I had here. But the second one is they just let him leave. They didn't, like, send anybody to, like, trail him or figure out where he was coming from or, you know, to make sure that he didn't, like, immediately go to turban or just in this world of like stationing because like all leading up to this and then sections later it's like there are people watching and subtle she taps her she taps her pipe to give a signal that this is happening and that is happening and in this world of like uber medieval spycraft they just let this guy leave wait so who did you think would follow circle breaker uh, i don't know but my point is they have spies everywhere anybody Right, but my point is that outside of Rallick, who eventually does figure out who the eel is, everybody here works for the eel. No, I got it, but everybody here doesn't necessarily know that Circle Breaker works for the eel. Yes, they do. Oh, yeah. If you say so. Yes. <laughs> like, Krupp has his friends, but, but his then, inner circle, but then everybody else... But then why is there the comment that she makes... Everybody's still breathing as though there was some conflict. And why does me say there's some dude looking for you? I don't know who he is. He just, but he's got the stink of soldier about him. 
She doesn't know who he is. Mm. We're going to have to agree to disagree there. <laughs> My perception is that Irolita and Meese are kind of the eels. They're close in his circle. I would agree with that. So I would agree with that. I do feel like they are like top lieutenants. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So next we have a scene with Baruch and Anamander where they kind of debrief over the events surrounding the Barrow where Anamander showed up and, you know, killed some hounds of shadow like you do. But some of the significant stuff that I drew out of this conversation was regarding Anamander's motivations in his character in general. So at this point, he's still kind of a, a closed book to Baruch. And, mm-hmm. and likewise, Baruch is sort of closed off to him as well. They haven't really put themselves out there as far as what they're really looking for mm-hmm. in, in the outcome of this city. Baruch kind of raises this idea that Lazine wants Darugistan intact. And Animator Rake does not want her to have Darugistan intact. Mm-hmm. So this implication or this idea occurs to him that, you know, would he rather the city just be destroyed than fall into her hands? However, Animator Ray quickly disabuses him of that notion and says, basically, I don't F with traitors. You know, if I did that or if I Mm -hmm. engaged in treachery myself, I would open myself up to that kind of backstabbing as well. Mm -hmm. And so that's just a very kind of fundamental core aspect of his character that he just puts out there in a way that you really believe that it's true, that that he is not going to turn around and stab Darugistan in the mm-hmm. back, if he makes a, a treaty with the city's leaders, he is going to to stick with it. He says to Baruch, I know you're worried that I did nothing to prevent the Talana mass from entering the Barrow. I believe the Jago Tyrant will be freed, but better now with me beside you than at some time when the Jago has no one capable of opposing him. We'll take this legend and we'll carve the life from it, Alchemist, and never again will the threat haunt you. And I'm sitting there like, as the reader thinking, okay... It's nice. Thank you. It's also exactly what the Empress wants you to do. Yes. I mean, yes, it is. I don't know that he has, he doesn't have a lot of other cards to play in this situation, but it is also going right up, you know, the lines of what, of what she wants. And then he even addresses that like two paragraphs later. He says, you see, either way she wins. Mm-hmm. And then he points out, sort of what is the real wild card in the scenario. And he says, if anything has her worried, it's your Torud Cabal. Torud mm, I don't know how to pronounce yeah. it, so chastise me online. Uh, of your ability, she knows nothing, which is why her agents seek this Vorkan. So he sort of spells out, mm-hmm. you know, why the emphasis so much on, on subverting the Assassin's Guild. Mm-hmm. Because this is the one sort of unknown in the whole equation. Right. And even, you know, at this point in this book, we still don't really know very much about this supposed cabal. Right. We know Baruch and we know Mamet, and that's it. That's all we really know. I mean, we have some sort of context hints that it's larger than that, mm-hmm. and, but we really don't have much insight into it. So so it's not only the big unknown to Lacine, but it's also the big unknown to us. Mm-hmm. So Animator Rake is compelled by duty. Like if he had a character sheet, that would be his his intent, his mm-hmm. purposes. You are compelled by duty to your people. And his people, we find out, are basically something that our teenagers have tried to convince us is possible 
and we have thought was impossible. They're they're dying of boredom, basically. Oh. <laughs> I don't know how many times we've seen. You can't actually die from being bored. Well, they're actually, you know, dying from being bored. I mean, maybe 100,000 years of boredom. Exactly. Death death by ennui. Uh, is, yeah. We're talking about a couple of hours. We of witness here on a daily basis in our house. <laughs> no, basically, so there are these very, very powerful creatures who have lived incredibly long lifespans, and they just finding anything to give them a reason to continue existing, that's that's uh, Animander Rake's main b- battle right now is just find a reason for my people to like even care, like you know. And they they don't have Netflix. It's I an mean, interesting come dilemma on. to have. And later, Baruch or Animander Rake mentions that he's read Mammoth's book, and Baruch is like, "Wow, he's, he's reading like that much." It's like. No, again, hundred thousand years. A hundred thousand <laughs> years, no Netflix. Yeah, so how well are you gonna do? I'm gonna read everything I can. <laughs> but he talks about they've become mercenaries of the spirit because that's there's just nothing left for them to do. Um, but he asks the question, is an honorable cause worth anything these days? And he says, Isn't it, you know, is it so unbelievable that we just want to devote ourselves to an honorable cause? He goes on to say that there is that you that you can't be 100 percent certain as to what my motivations are. He says there is no certainty in this. And and he goes on to say this is a fact and it seems to be particularly galling to you humans. I just had to take a minute there. I feel <laughs> really attacked all of a sudden by this book. I feel very personally attacked. Burn. It's like Anna Manorake has been reading my text messages. Because he's bored. <laughs> so then they start having a conversation about Mammoth, and we find out that he is a, quote, high priest of Direk, uh, which they say, well, that explains the cynicism in his writings, Rex <laughs> says, grinning. The worm of autumn breeds an unhappy lot, right? I'm like, what, you know, this means nothing to me. You know, uh-huh. <laughs> like, I sort of highlighted it and was like, okay, file that away for four books from now. When we meet somebody else who's a high priest of direct, like I have no way to put any of this in context. So, well, I will just real quick say, if you go to the glossary, and I'm not saying you should, um, because that can have spoilers, but the thing I noted about this was, okay, so you've got all of these ascendants, and we've met some of them. We met Hood, we met Shadow Throne, and then they have their high priests, Mm -hmm. which is, and we, we know through conversations with the god Kroll that, you know, having high priests is what gives... Um, the gods are power. the gods mm-hmm. power in this world, but you've got if you look at the list of ascendants in the glossary, I just thought it was funny because you've got you know the lady of light, the lady of health and healing. Um, you've got high house shadow. Well, the we god never of see death, those people, <laughs> and you no, know, there's a whole list of them, but all they're all like. It's like Chance, the Lady of Calm Seas, the Lord of Fair Wind, blah, blah, blah. The Lady of Disease. That's the worst one, okay? Why? That's Drek. The oh. Worm of Autumn, the Lady of Disease. My thought uh. was just, why would you pick that? That's a... Why would you pick that one? Yeah, so the yeah. comment of like, yeah, those... Like the Lady of Warm that's Puppies. That's a miserable <laughs> bunch of bastards, right. the Lady of Disease. Now we I'm do the know High through... Lord of Lemon Cookies. Exactly. You shall fear my wrath. 
I mean, we know through things that Tattersale has told us that as if you're a maid, you just sort of like one or other of the Warrens kind of calls to you. It's something mm. in your nature. But wouldn't that just suck? <laughs> like, maybe I'll be a wizard one day. Your only oh. ability is to create rot and disease. <laughs> oh, damn it. Oh, dang it. <laughs> it's that or be a plumber. Fuck. <laughs> By the way, I'm sure, th- I'm sure there are a lot of very nice plumbers. I'm not, I'm not trying to malign plumbers. But if, you're, if your choice is to be a plumber... Or to be a wizard. I don't know. Which ascendant would I have to be a wizard of? <laughs> I need to think about it. So, essentially, we find out that uh, Mammoth is fucked. Yes, royally. He's, he's, he's got very slim chance to get out of this. Yes. Mammoth is in sort of a magical coma. He opened his Drith, Driss Warren, which is the Path of Stone. Somehow it got it, it it got caught up and interfered with the the kind of bubble that Tool has around mm-hmm. him um, from his Talon Warren, and it basically it all kind of locked him psychically in the Barrow. This bubble around the Barrow as well. He's psychically locked in the bubble around the Barrow. It's got a ring to it. It's got something to it. <laughs> Uh, and then my last point in this section is, in a manner, Rake asked Baruch, uh, do you know if this tyrant's capable of enslaving a goddess? And I have to admit feeling dumb for asking this, but I just don't know who the goddess is. it? Oh, it's Direk. Direk, yes. I didn't, of course, I didn't know anything about Direk or Direk's gender or... Yes. But as the lady of disease, that makes sense. So his concern is that by Mammoth being there, mm-hmm. that the Jaguar Tyrant will be able to then pull in mm-hmm. uh, through him direct. Check. Got it. Yes. Yes. And unfortunately, the only person that can answer that question is Mammoth. And he's a little busy. He's a little busy. So uh, now we get back to Circle Breaker. Yes, we've got sort of a... a, a, a spy montage here mm-hmm. where we've got all of the agents of the eel kind of running around and doing things that we don't know what uh, don't, don't make sense to us now but it really for me just highlights how extensive the eels network is mm-hmm. and it's particularly funny to me that when we see a few scenes later we see Krupp come in and he's just talking all he wants is his dinner and you know this kind of it's such a it's a really humorous kind of contrast Mm-hmm. To what we know. To what we know he's capable he's, of. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. So we have a conversation with Circle Breaker, and he says, certainly, sooner or later, the councilman, would he's talking about Turban or would recall his many meetings beneath the despot's barbican, and the guard who'd been stationed there every time. And I'm like, dude, Turban or has never once looked at your face. Mm-hmm. He wouldn't recognize you if you were standing right in front of him and told him you were a guard mm-hmm. and told him you stood at the barbican's death, that dude does not care about you. <laughs> You're fine. We hope so. He's fine. Turbinor doesn't have a... Is that one of your predictions? That's Well, it is now. <laughs> okay. Turbinor has no clue who this dude is. Ne- okay. Never looked at his face. So Crocus and Absalar make it to Mammoth's, but he is gone. Mammoth, that is, is gone. Mammoth is gone, yes. I, I noted that Absalar reacted badly to the word assassin. Mm-hmm. Well, here's the, here's the interaction. 
Strange. Maybe Rollick knows something about it. Who's Rollick? As an assassin friend of mine, Crocus responded distractedly. <laughs> and then she like, you know, f- right. flinches and then she's like, I, I almost remembered something, but then it was gone. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I feel like the word assassin is optional in that sentence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like you could just be like, he's a friend of mine. Unless you're, you know, name dropping a little bit. If you had an assassin friend, wouldn't you be like, oh, that's my assassin friend? How do you know I don't have assassin friends? Because you would tell me if you had a cool assassin friend. Would I tell the world? (laughs) Can you just let me have this point? (laughs) Well, I, I definitely think that Crocus doth protest too much in terms of his not really being into Absalar. Mm hmm. You know, and I that's made clear by the end of this section. So. Right. And Crocus is still obviously very, um, he's young, the the thug life is glamorous, he he likes bragging about it, you know. Um, yeah, yeah, that's true. That's That's part of his character. Yeah, and that was kind of his whole reason for, like, becoming a thief. It wasn't, mm-hmm. it wasn't out of necessity, it was right. because it looked cool. Right. So, yeah, good point. It was so he could have assassin friends. You know what? I concede. Okay. You won that one. So speaking of assassins, we move on to um, Sarat, a Tistandi assassin, mm-hmm. who we know is a is a bad donkey. Um, and we see that she is poised outside of the house where they are, waiting to be able to take Crocus out. I mean, boy, don't stand a chance. It's not looking good. Mm-mm. Um, really when Krupp arrived back at the Phoenix Inn, and again, Krupp comes in just like fixated on his dinner. It's pretty funny. Circle Breaker approaches Marilio, gives him the same message, mm-hmm. just kind of a, you know, a little bit of redundancy built in there. And Rollick sets out to hunt Ocelot. Now, With a crossbow and a bag of magic beans. Magic dust that he is not supposed to rub all over his skin. No, he's definitely not supposed to do that. He rubs it all over his skin. Yeah. So he's been told that this dust, and it was given to him by Baruch, who Mm -hmm. is, you know, we know is a a very capable sorcerer, that if it comes in contact with his skin, it could make permanent changes to him that are unpredictable. But it's also supposed to make him, he's supposed to, I guess, put it on his clothes and his gear and will make those things impervious to magic. Mm -hmm. So we we know as kind of a, a sidebar that, one of the conflicts and the reason that Rallick has not risen any farther than he has in the guild is his reluctance to use those kinds of charms and to use magic in any way. So this just shows us how important this is to him. Yeah, it's and also is going to be a, a big advantage with him, for, you know, if he's going to attack Ocelot, who is not going to be expecting something like that. Moving on to chapter 18. The bridge burners prepare to set their end game into motion. Callum is going to try and make contact with the Assassin's Guild one more time. If that doesn't work, they're going to blow shit up. Paran and Call arrive at the city gates and narrowly avoid being assassinated, thanks to Ralik Nam. Paran gets Call back to the Phoenix Inn, and as luck would have it... See what I did there? Mm-hmm. He runs into Callum, who is able to summit Mallet, the healer, who saves Call's life. Whew! Paran and Whiskey Jack put all of the cards on the table while Surratt, the unlucky assassin mage, gets knocked out. Mm. And that's chapter 18. That it is. All over. So we start with 
where we end chapter 17, which is the Rollick and Ocelot fight. Gasping, Rollick lurched forward and hammered the other dagger into Ocelot's forehead. So fucking metal. It's pretty metal. Assassin fight. I mean, come on. So metal. So metal. This is definitely the most action that happens in the in the whole Absolutely. This is definitely the highlight of the action um for this for book six. Um, and it's pretty badass. Oh, it is. It's, it's pretty it's badass. It's a badass fight, for um, sure. You really don't know who, who is going to win. Um, Ralik does get stabbed, and he is thinks he's not going to make it, but um, the magic powder steps in. Right before the assassin fight, though, if we can just go back for a minute, we have a scene with Whiskey Jack and the bridge burners, mm-hmm. and they're kind of talking about their plans and stuff. And there's a really touching moment there that, that I really liked where Fiddler kind of challenges Whiskey Jack for keeping the squad at arm's length Mm -hmm. emotionally, even after all of this time. He's still sort of their leader. He does not lean on anyone for support. He just kind of keeps to himself or, you know, emotionally anyway. And there's a moment where Whiskey Jack kind of decides to let down his guard and change that dynamic. And it kind of hinges on the realization that Sari actually was something more than human. And that had been Mm -hmm. a crisis of Whiskey Jack's throughout this book. And in particular, he would always defend Sari when everybody else was like, dude, she is evil. We should kill her. And he would always kind of, of be like, nope, she's not any worse than any of us. And he always really saw Sari as sort of a reflection of kind of his own failings but also of humanity's failings like here is this what 16 15 16 year old girl Mm -hmm. who is just got this darkness inside of her and when he finds out that that's not true that there actually was a supernatural cause to the way that she is Mm -hmm. it's kind of like this feeling of well maybe humanity isn't totally fucked yeah like maybe she wasn't just a really messed up human and maybe she's not a reflection of who I've become, you know, and maybe I'm not, you get in whiskey Jack, this feeling that, that maybe he thinks that he feels like he's been consumed by this darkness Mm -hmm. and that he, there's no going back that he's been like irrevocably damaged by the things that he has witnessed and done. And I, I feel like there's this turning point in this chapter where he, maybe questions whether that's true. And then mm -hmm. as a result, he is able to like let, decide to let people in. Yeah, I mean, he's been comparing himself to Sari and saying he's no worse than her and it could have been any of them and look at the things that we've done, Mm -hmm. you know, and when all of a sudden that comparison fails, you know, he's, he's left to consider, well, maybe, you know, maybe there is something decent to humanity. Yeah. So I just, for me, that's just such a, a neat bit of writing there that I enjoyed because, and in this book, characters just kind of ruminate a lot. And he's had several times where he just kind of ruminated on his thoughts about sorry and his thoughts about humanity. And to see that kind of tied up or have a little arc in those uh, mm-hmm. those inner struggles that Whiskey Jack was having was just really nicely done and a very satisfying moment for me. So anyway, back to the assassin fight. Back to the assassin fight. What I really liked here was the scene, you know, the way that it goes back and forth between what's happening with Ralik and then Paran and Call arriving at the gate. And um, Paran, because he's just kind of riding up to the city. He has no idea who Call mm-hmm. is or yeah. any of the 
the back drama that's going on. And it's just so typical of Peran to like, he's just like, dur, 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 you know, yeah. and he's got this wounded guy and I, I met this new friend, yeah. you know, and he's like, and oh, is that something moving up on that hill? And it's like, actually, a glint of light. A glint nah. of light. Oh, no, guess not. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, and in the background, you know that there's this like really intense, like badass mm-hmm. battle going on. So when we last talked about Crocus and Absalar, we said that they were, they had, you know, Surratt waiting Mm -hmm. outside. Yes. And, you know, also we know that there's like this assassin's war going on the rooftops. Right. So their plan was basically to escape on the rooftops. And when they go to escape on the rooftops... It says, and the rooftops themselves had been empty of life, as as if a path free of obstruction had been made of them. More of the eels' brilliance at work. And then right before this, we also have, or maybe it was right after, I forget the timing, we have Surratt, who was poised outside of the house waiting mm-hmm. for, for darkness, say, a thick, dull ache throbbed in the back of the skull. She probed the wound, wincing, then stood up. The world spun, then settled. Surratt was bewildered and angry. She'd been blindsided, and whoever done it was good. Good enough to sneak up on a T-Standee assassin mage? Like, who could do that? Yeah, so only that's a really one person fun, that comes to my mind. That's a that's a really fun uh, moment there, where the last time we saw her, light on his feet, right? Well, and and I don't I don't know that it was necessarily corrupt himself, although it very well could be. Um, but we know that Krupp will subtly cast spells here and there. He could have known what was happening and, you know, used somebody else to do it, um, equipped with his magic, but either way it was Krupp. You know, that's a really good point. Cause one of the problems I had with this part was, you know, okay, so the eel has his agents go and get Crocus and take him into hiding and he hides him upstairs at the Phoenix <laughs> Inn where like everybody knows the crocus hangs out like yeah like you put him upstairs like how is this a good hiding spot you know but 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 but, if what you just said is that this is his nexus of power this is his mm -hmm. home base so if he has it surrounded with protective sorceries then and agents then it does kind of make sense to have him up there and what's interesting about that is you know in this world where people can like see magic from the sky Mm -hmm. you know in in crone and people who can um you know detect the presence of other warrens being activated etc we don't really know anything about krupp or his source of power right um but what we do know is that there's a lot of weird fucking warrens that pop up all the time mm-hmm. and ascendants who disappear and come back to life in the case of Corral and all this stuff so who's to say that you know if he did have just massive amounts of magic surrounding the Phoenix Inn mm-hmm. that anybody, you know, with magic would know mm-hmm. or be able to tell or see it. Right. You know, it's not a given that that is the case. Right. We don't know. We don't know. What we do know is every time somebody, you know, like when the assassins from the Tistandee were going to follow Crocus into the inn, they got to the inn and then they were like, Nah, let's go ahead and let him live. And we know that he has the ability to influence people's perception. Mm-hmm. Yes. So 
you know, was that, you know, the one of the first instances of us seeing that magic, but just manifest in a really subtle way? Mm-hmm. Probably not, but who knows? Who knows? We know that Krupp's magic is super subtle. Yes, yes. And it makes it so, it just makes it fascinating for me. Yeah. So Peron and Call show up at the inn. Call had um, directed Peron to get him to the Phoenix Inn. Um not anywhere else. And thankfully the guards at the gate recognized him as someone that they thought was dead. So most of the city had thought that Lord call had died. Mm-hmm. Um, they recognize him and, and get him there. Well, and that also makes, I'm sorry to go back to this, no, but that also makes, it makes you think that like people thought call was dead. Call had spent, you know, two years drinking himself into a hole. Right. Well, like again, Krupp maybe had been hiding him there. Mm hmm. You know, it's but, all crop. Everything is crop. Everything. Um, you know, I mean, it makes sense, right? Mm-hmm. Totally makes how, sense. I mean, how do you keep him away from the power of people who would assassinate him and his obviously super vengeful ex-wife? Mm-hmm. And, you know, how do you keep him sort of out of the way so that people will forget about it or leave it alone or this drunk dude won't stumble out, seek revenge, and get himself killed? Well, mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't know, but it all seems to ha- center around the Phoenix Inn in some way. Mm-hmm. Plus, how many times did the circle break? Or I'm sorry, how many times did the bridge burners go looking for a place where the thieves and like they they kept looking for a place like the Phoenix Inn, mm-hmm. but couldn't find it. Mm-hmm. They did eventually. I don't find know if it. that's true. They did eventually find it, but yeah. it took them a long time. Yeah, but they weren't able to make contact. So we've got a scene where Peron has taken Call upstairs and found the best doctor they have available, which is not not a great one. This is like they bring in basically Dr. Spaceman, yeah. you know, <laughs> um, and he's like, oh, he's not going to live. So Peron is downstairs brooding. He He's assuming that his, and he, of course, Peron is just kind of like, oh, I'm so unlucky. My luck <laughs> must have changed, you know. He sticks, he remembers that Andamander Rake told him when your luck turns to break the sword, get rid of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so he gets, he sticks it down into the table super dramatically, of course, you know. In the middle of a crowded inn, he pulls out this giant sword and mm-hmm. it slams it down into the cracks between the boards of the table and gets ready to break it off. Callum shows up. Mm-hmm. And says, your God-given luck is holding, Captain. So we're not quite sure how he knows what he knows. He is then, of course, able to go and get a better doctor in the squad's healer, Mallet. Mm -hmm. And they are able to save Call just at the very nick of time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, What I find funniest about the scene with uh, Peron and the sword is he, again, he's in this this inn, you know, and we talked about it being sort of, you know, a, a center for the seedier side of life, you know, and he pulls out a sword and all these people like turn around and put their hands on their sword and then he slams it in the table and wordlessly people just kind of go back to doing yeah, 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 yeah. doing. <laughs> so they, they manage to save Call and then we get, you know, and as I'm reading that, I'm like, okay, this... This makes sense. It's kind of cool that Kalam showed up right at the right moment. They grabbed Mallet. You know, I'm reading this. I'm like, it's kind of, it's satisfying. It's cool. Not like super surprising. But then we have what is, to me, the surprise of the whole section, which is Whiskey Jack and the whole bridge burner show up. Right. And then they open up a portal to be able to communicate with Dujek. Right. 
And Dujek tells us two monumentally huge pieces of news mm-hmm. right here in the third act of the book. Yes. One, that he's getting ready to revolt and the seven cities are getting ready to revolt. Right. So there's about to be this huge civil war. But two, that there's this whole new piece on the chessboard called the Panion Seer, the Panion Seer, mm-hmm. um, who even now prepares his armies for a holy war. And I'm like, well, like, where like is there, this? There are 10 more books. Yeah, true. <laughs> but nine it, more books, sorry. It, but it, it very much has the feel of like when I was on, when we were watching that first battle, the battle for, for Pale, and like just demons start popping up and yeah, shit. Yeah, yeah. And you're like, you're like, God damn, we had framed this world, mm-hmm. and now you're just pulling the curtain back, and there's just a whole lot more world. Yeah. Yes, so that is what happens. And Paran and Whiskey Jack and Dujek kind of put their put their goals out there. Okay, well, this is what I want. You know, Dujak is going to take the continent from Lazine. Mm-hmm. Um, he's like, she's we're, we're going to get her out of here. And kind of the main question is like, well, why... Why are you still working against, why are you still kind of working in her interest? And we get into that. That actually is a conversation I think that happens in the next chapter. What we find out is that the plan has has been to take the continent back from Lazine. Paran just wants revenge, basically, for mm-hmm. killing his girlfriend so that she has to be reincarnated. And now she's like a kid and it's his all His girlfriend weird. that he... His motivations are the most <laughs> right? shallow and stupid. It's a little weird. <laughs> you made out with this 200-year-old chick one time. Like, this doesn't need to set the entire... Man, she must have been... I'm just saying, really she must have been really good. 200 years of experience. <laughs> so, to wrap up this chapter, Lorne and Tool make it into the Barrow. And we find out that what... You know, it's not like they're walking into the barrow and there's the Jagu and he's sleeping and they're like, come on, <laughs> asshole, get up, you know, yeah, shove a sword through his chest. What they do is they they go in to find something, which is um, which is called the thinnest, which mm-hmm. is a magical object that can basically contains like the Jagu's powers or is going to be a sort of a magnet to him. And so we have this very kind of Indiana Jones vibe in this scene where she goes in and there's these all of these objects around the barrow and she has to pick which one is the thinnest. So the thinnest ends up being an acorn. It's significant when she picks that up and she realizes like the Jagu really weren't warlike. You know, they're going to pick mm-hmm. there's one object, you know, that's going to contain like all of all of these powers. And, you know, in our culture, we have like magic swords. That's kind of the thing or magic weapons. Um, they have an acorn, uh, which is going to be the key to waking up the Jagu. And I guess she's just going to like, you know, run into the city and try and wake it up in the worst place possible. Moving on to chapter 19. Crocus and Absalar break out of protective custody and hide out in the Temple of Cruel, where they find Ocelot's body. Surat the Assassin Mage attempts to attack Crocus, but she is repelled by a mysterious force. Ralic staggers back to Marilio's room only to discover that his wounds have been miraculously healed. Whiskeyjack lets Paran in on the Bridgeburner's greater plans, and Lorne heads into Jerugistan with the Finnist. So, the first thing I noticed in this chapter was Absalar asking Crocus why he killed a guard. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Uh-huh. So the reason that Irolita and Mies have told Crocus that he needs to hide is that the Darls, who is the family that Crocus broke into their house and, and mm-hmm. all of that, um, have found the, the the dead guard that was killed by Sorry. Cotillion, you know, mm-hmm. it, possessing Sorry was found and that someone gave the name, gave his name. Mm-hmm. And so Crocus, of course, knows that that must have been Chalice Darl. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. I I do feel like Crocus has the dumbest motivations for what he does. No, fair, fair. So Crocus decides he's got to confront her. He's like, how dare she give my name to yeah. the authorities when I broke into her room twice? Twice. <laughs> she showed me her boobs. I, thought, I mean, she I was thought asleep. That meant we had a pact <laughs> or something. And she was asleep at the time. It was unbidden, but you know. <laughs> Yeah, so, so uh, yeah. So yeah, I agree. That was actually my first note as well. But a little bit later, uh, he says, "There's more going on than just an order for my arrest." Hood's breath. The thieves' guild takes care of such things, and that's why they get ten percent of every job I do. None of this makes sense, Absalar. And then he unlatched the window. I'm sick of everyone telling me what to do. <laughs> oh, Crocus. She came to his side. Are we leaving then? You know, and and I'm like, one, how can he be so smart? And so stupid at the same time. Mm-hmm. Because on one hand, he's right. This is what the Thieves Guild does to take care of things. Right. I mean, at the same point in time, if Shalice Darl puts a you know, puts his name in people's ear, there, there's nothing the Thieves Guild can do about it. You know? Well, I, I assume that the Thieves Guild would hush it up at the the police level, pay somebody you know, off pay, pay yeah, yeah. somebody mm-hmm. off, something like that. It, it's his need to like confront her or, or sees what she, she oh, had yeah. done as a betrayal is like, yeah, it's basically idiotic, he, yeah. he, he broke into her room. He stole all her shit. He broke back in to put it back. And, and then when she wasn't in, instantly like stop thief, yeah. he was like, my name is Crocus young hand and I'm coming back for you. <laughs> like, like, she was like, okay. I'm pretty sure it was done by Crocus Younghand. <laughs> I don't <laughs> seem to recall he said that <laughs> and that he was coming back. <laughs> yeah. So the other part of it too is so he recognizes that like this isn't this isn't right, this situation that like it wasn't just taken care of. Right. Um, but at the same point in time, if he knows the situation is that fucked up, mm-hmm. one why would he ever leave the safety of the people who care for him and can protect him? Right. Especially to go challenge her. I mean, have you met a teenager? Yeah, yeah I have. We, <laughs> we have a couple. Yeah. Um, I mean, that was, oh my goodness, that was just stupid. And then, and then he's going to wander around alone on these roofs with a girl that he knows just hours ago was a vicious assassin <laughs> yeah. who who is only in his mind going through a period of amnesia uh-huh. meaning at any minute she could regain her memories and stab him through the liver <laughs> I, I mean there's a lot of stupidity in there's, this chapter i got some things later too it is a lot of layers of stupidity well and at least at least as it relates to the stupidity in this chapter it's all layered mostly on top of Crocus. It, indeed, yes, agreed. <laughs> Definitely agreed. It's just a lot of layers of stupidity. <laughs> so as Absalar and Crocus are sneaking out, Surat the assassin mage, having just woken up from a, a concussion, you know, basically, mm-hmm. having been knocked out, 
um, she sees them escaping and she goes to attack them again. And she is like knocked on her ass by like an invisible force. Mm -hmm. So this kind of reinforces for us that, yes, there's there's some kind of protective enchantment uh, around him. And that is very powerful. Clearly. I mean, if it can supersede, you know, one of the Tistandee's magic. Rallick and Marilio. Uh, uh, Rallick shows back up in Marilio's room. Marilio had been preparing to uh, take on Rallick's part of the plan. Um, he's worried because he doesn't think he can actually beat Turban Orr in a duel. So mm-hmm. obviously Rallick was, that was going to be his part. Uh, but he was prepared to do it anyway. Rallick shows up and he's, you know, when we last saw him, he was lying on this, the temple, the, the roof of this temple, waiting to die, looking mm-hmm. up at the sky, you know, wishing he could see the stars before he died. Mm-hmm. Now we see him stumbling in covered in blood. But when he checks himself, his wounds, I mean, he still lost a lot of blood, but his wounds have healed. Mm-hmm. Marilio heads off. He's going to find the eel. He thinks he's figured out who he is. And Rallick, I just like the part where Rallick is checking the mirror to see like if he's grown horns yeah. or <laughs> <laughs> he's got a third nipple or something <laughs> permanently changed one mm. <laughs> and then there's a tiny scene where Krupp is per- reporting to Baruch mm. and mm. It, I what I noted here was that it almost makes you think that it, some things that Baruch says he's talking about wanting to contact the eel and you almost wonder if he knows who it's, he is it seems like he's like He's like, if only I could get a message to the eel. And Krupp is like, I can arrange that. And he's like, when will the eel respond? Uh-huh. Probably by the end of the day. Uh-huh. You know, why would he ask that second question mm-hmm. if he didn't already know yes. that Krupp? Well, and he may not know that he's the eel, but he knows that he knows who the eel is. Yes. But it also makes you think if he knows that Krupp knows who the eel is, then he would have to assume that his loyalty was split. So it seems to me that he would only keep him around if he actually thought he was the eel. If he knows that I know that he knows exactly. that I know. It's exactly <laughs> the, that's the sort of logic I'm going for. Right here. <laughs> so then we have a conversation with whiskey Jack and Peron. Yes. Uh, talking about the, and this, and actually this is where we find out, you know, when Dujek tells us that there's going to be a revolt in the seven right. cities and yeah. not in the last chapter, in this chapter. Um, but we, we learn a lot more about the situation in the seven cities and Ganabacus and just what's going on with the Empress overall. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't give a damn if the Empress wants to come after us. She won't have much to do it with since the seven cities is days away from reclaiming its independence. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then we also learn sort of about this this greater threat of mm-hmm. the Panion Seer. You know, when I say we're in trouble, I don't just mean Genabacus. I mean the world. And I have to ask myself, okay, well, one, like it almost strikes me, and I don't know anything about this Panion Seer, because mm-hmm. until, you know, until a few pages ago, I'd never heard the word before, right? right. Um, other than they want to start a holy war. But it's like, you know, is this almost like, an others versus Westeros situation mm-hmm. where, uh, you know, there's this just overwhelming oppressive force coming, uh, but nobody takes it seriously because they're too busy dealing with their own petty backstabbing. Mm. Is that sort of what's going on? Except, except in Westeros, we actually knew about the others. So we knew it was a threat and here we don't, we, we don't know. Right. 
We don't know. So, yes, what gets laid out for us is that because Peron at this point questions Whiskey Jack, he's like, hey, wait a minute. If you're rebelling against the Empress, then why are you still doing everything she asked you to do? And Whiskey Jack explains to him that the plan is for still for Darugistan to fall, drama, drama, you know, to erupt. Uh, but at that point, Dujak is going to swoop in and take the city. And they want Dujak to basically, you know, have as many resources as possible to then be able to face the Panion Seer, whoever mm-hmm. or whatever that is. I'm thinking if you've served the Empress, you know, as an officer in our army for 27 years, mm-hmm. uh, and there's this huge, like, unseen, oh my God, this is way more dangerous than the Empress mm-hmm. force descending upon you. Maybe, I don't know, hold your rebellion until after. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it worked for the Bolsheviks. <laughs> so Lorne and Tool then emerge from the barrow. Two days later, they're all hungover. They're not. I don't <laughs> Drunk know. Drunk on power. <laughs> uh, Tool uh, tells her that he is going to hang around for a couple of days, observe what happens, but then he is out. He's going to go find his own answers, do his mm-hmm. own thing. They have two days. I guess that's how long it takes the Jagu to Mm -hmm. work his way out from wherever. Um, But Lauren has a moment where she realizes that all of her doubts and all of that is kind of lifted. You know, her course is set. Um, For me, it's kind of a sad character moment because I thought that the... All of this, the struggle with Lauren and is she the adjunct? Is she her own person? You really wanted to see her, like, break away. But at this point, you're like she's you're like she's not going to do that yeah I, I mean this is sort of a real struggle for me from a prediction standpoint because the character arc seems to be going the direction of she's going to have a realization that releasing this thing upon this unsuspecting population just because Lacine wants her to mm-hmm. it is by definition an act of evil right you know contributing to violence and death you know, she's had this observation and, and it's never going to end mm-hmm. because her example is the Jagoot and the Talana Mass mm-hmm. fighting for 300,000 years across mm-hmm. eons of time and, yeah. and all this stuff, you know. And so you would like to think that she's going to, you know, take the smoking bomb that she's running with and right. stick it in a barrel of water and yeah. everything's, you know. Um, however, I don't think that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. I mean, it could, but I don't think it's going to happen because it seems to be setting up that there's going to be this huge conflict between the Talana Mass and the Jagu Tyrant mm-hmm. and uh, and this war for Darujistan, and it's all going to happen in one night during, you know, Lady Simtal's fete. Mm-hmm. So it's hard for me to make the prediction that she's going to do that, especially when this is the words that she leaves us with. So I like, I really don't know which direction it's going to go, but I could completely see her. I don't know how she would manage to accomplish it, but you know, taking it out, taking him out somewhere away from the city. Mm -hmm. But ultimately, and this is the reason I think ultimately why I don't think that's going to happen is because two days. So the most she could hope to accomplish would be to put him somewhere two days outside of the city. Mm-hmm. Like he's not going to go to Jerusalem. Right. So it's not, it's not really, it's not really saving anything. Right. 
seems like the die has already been cast. Yeah, that's well said. That was that was very well said. The other thing I noticed she said in this sort of thing, and then I'm, and then I'm done here. She said during this moment of crisis, she knew herself well. She knew how to control all that was within her. Years of training, discipline, loyalty, and duty—the virtues of a soldier. Uh, and I think we can all agree that whatever is going on with Lorne is more than just the training of a soldier. Mm, yeah. Like, you know, it's be, it's beyond just that she was a well-trained soldier. Right. Because you don't get to be the adjunct and carry the otateral sword uh, at the age of 20 mm-hmm. because you're you're good at polishing your boots. Right. So now we have Crocus and Absalar who are heading to Crocus's hiding spot, which turns out to be the abandoned temple of Kroll. He says, we can go here. No one ever goes there. And so as soon as they get there, Sari's like, there's a body. And he's like, another one? <laughs> so yeah, so the whole conversation, so here we, so let's just break it down. Let's just break it down. Crocus's yeah. suave people skills. Uh-huh. So they, they're climbing up, they're 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 approaching the temple, mm-hmm. and uh, and she's like, "Oh look, there's a there's a story painted on the walls." Oh, I know. And, and he goes, <laughs> "Don't be ridiculous." But that's that's absurd. And she goes, "Crocus, there's blood everywhere. That's just rain." Like what? You are a dick. Kid. I know. This is the third time that we've been in the in the temple of Kroll since you know we've we've come to Jerudistan in mm-hmm. this book, and yes. He knows that an assassin was just killed here. I, exactly. Like, <laughs> like, why is everyone trying to protect this kid again? Like, <laughs> I know he's such a dumbass. <laughs> kind of a dumbass. Um, yeah, that's that was pretty much my main point for this scene. Yeah. Um, and that, but then we have Absalar who kind of segs into a, this story, this weird ass story about the sea on the moon. Like, yeah. Have you, have you looked at the moon? She's like, it's Gralin's sea. And one day Gralin is going to come down and take his chosen away to mm-hmm. live in an ocean paradise. And our children will swim like dolphins. I, I mean, what? <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a weird sort of, that's just a weird sort of Itko Khan memories coming back yes. to her is the only thing I can, I can yes. think. Uh, but, but these two are just a piece of work they together. They really are like, and it's, uh, it's, it's dumb and dumber, you know, like, I don't, I mean, you know, Absalar can sort of be, forgiven because of everything that's happened to her croak crocus has no excuse for his stupidity and yep. it and it ends with him being like you know she is pretty <laughs> three days of being trapped in a building with her <laughs> and suddenly realizing that the, the darl maiden wants me dead uh-huh has caused me to think that perhaps other women <laughs> might might be an option. It's a weird ending for it's the section. It's a weird ending for the it's section. It's a weird ending for the section. But, but the it, title of the next book is The Fet. So we're going to a party. It's it it's gonna be interesting. I, I like the sort of convention. It's not the you know, we see this a lot in a lot of movies and stories where like something really overwhelming and magical occurs mm-hmm. during a party. Right. Like, you know, like, um, 
the, the one that immediately comes to mind that I'm definitely going to spoil for you is uh, Back to the Future, where like yes, all yeah. the it's all at the dance, it's yeah. all at the dance at the prom or homecoming or whatever mm-hmm. it was that everything sort of comes to this conclusion, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm just sort of envisioning, you know, the Fet in you know as every 80s movie right. you know, possible you know there's going to be a masquerade ball and people are going to come in and there's going to be people going oh that's an interesting costume when mm-hmm. really it's the monster you know <laughs> it's gonna, it's going to be like that like i'm i'm very much excited and looking forward to the next book right well are you ready to talk about some listener interactions yes all right theogram brown says whoops Turns out I hadn't even read the section yet. I got fully stuck into those Expanse books, and now I'm starting on book number eight. That is allowed. Yeah. So I actually am starting book number three right now. Yay. So I've been reading those as well. Matt Hargreaves says, who would you rather sit in a pub and have a pint with, Krupp or Tool? Um, Tool. Oh. Only because I think it would be hilarious when he drinks the pint and all the liquid (laughs) falls out of his face because he's undead. All right, I feel you. You know, he's like you. he's drinking it and it falls into his skeleton stomach and then big splashes on the floor. <laughs> that would be hilarious. That is hilarious. I mean, I'm going Krupp just because I feel like if he can build up enough affection for me, then he'll give me some badass, you know, supernatural protective forces. I mean, if he's if willing I'm to, ever threatened. Yeah, if he's willing to to make that kind of risk for Cro- Crocus, and we've established he's stupid. Uh, I mean, how much more is he going to love you? Uh, Luke Morell says, what's the average number of quills in a porcupine? All right, smart ass. 247. <laughs> that sounds like it might be right. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, Theo says, I got to hand it to Baruch. Rake gets all grumpy about him knowing Opon was involved. So Baruch just uh, gets him off monologuing about stuff. Smooth. That was pretty smooth. smooth. I hadn't caught that. Yeah. That's funny. He also says, I love how Peron spent most of the book thinking about finally meeting up with Whiskey Jack again, but when he sees him in the doorway, he doesn't recognize him. Yes, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Uh, then he says, Quiz, you have been asked to find a self-contained Omtos Felloc, Warren. How do you respond? A, of course, we used to bullseye them back in the farm every night. <laughs> B, a phallic what? I think you need a very different sort of shop, ma'am. <laughs> C, self-contained? I mean, I've got Omtos phallic warrants coming out of my arse. Self-contained? <sighs> That's going to cost you. <laughs> B. I'm going C. But <laughs> <laughs> Sam Denberg says, why is your father smells of elderberries an insult? Ginny. Uh, he's, he's calling him an alcoholic. Oh, that is probably right. That's I mean, that's the way I. Oh, I just thought it was it was that's it was funny because it wasn't an insult. It was just kind of random. But also, that is a good point. Oh, you just rocked my world. I don't know. if that, I don't know if that's true. I, I mean, I'm I just, was, it might be. I was just surmising. I don't know what the hamster I mean, your I mother know. was a hamster. Sure, that's an insult. I mean, that seems insulting. <laughs> but I feel like your father smelt of elderberries is a slightly more insulting. Hmm. So. Eric Allgaier says, I thought it was curious that we didn't have a lot of pressing questions about chapters 17 through 19. Why is that? In other books we've read, we saw flawed characters in a world where we kind of understood and we asked tons of questions. But it's not like we have a shortage of flaws characters in Gardens of the Moon. So what's different? 
My thoughts are this, we're 80% through this book and we still don't know what to expect from this world. For example, if Locke Lamora got attacked by a psychotic wizard marionette out in the desert, we'd be like, what the fuck? Mm-hmm. If Kaladin ran into an ex-girlfriend who was now five years old, we'd be like, what the fuck? Mm-hmm. If Quoth fell into a magical sword realm where he forced the god of chance to free a couple of hellhounds, we'd... Actually, that would be pretty cool, but it would still be hard to process because it went against a world we think we understood. Mm -hmm. So my question for the Malazan veterans is this, when will we have some sort of foothold with which to understand and judge this world? Three more chapters, three more books, never. Uh, uh, Yeah, maybe never. That is, that is a good question. And please, you know, um, get on there, uh, experienced readers and, and tell us what you think of that. Eric also asks, have you thought about pinning these send us your questions posts so they don't get buried in the other group chatter? I had not. That is a good idea. Matt Hargreaves says, has the new episode been posted? Yet? Oh, sorry. Uh, no, yeah, sorry. No, been, we had some uh, been posted, yeah. natural disasters. <laughs> let's, let's call it that. <laughs> All right. Are you? So thank you for questions, everyone. Absolutely. And remember, next time. Uh, we're going to be reading the end of the book. So we have two things left. Woohoo! Two things left. First yes. is predictions. And the second is revealing what comes next. Well, lay your predictions on us. All right. So I have a handful. So first is that I think that it is not going to be Anamanda Rake that saves Darugistan. Hmm. Okay. I think it's going to be Baruch. Hmm. That's my thought. I like it. Uh, Krupp knocked out Surat, which I think we'd already established. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Finnist will be put inside Darujistan. We had a long conversation about that. Mm-hmm. Seems fairly obvious. Um, and then my last one is that I think Mamet somehow survives. Okay. Those, no, nothing earth shattering there. But those are my predictions. Good predictions. All right. So Duchess... 126 will be the conclusion of Gardens of the Moon. What is 127, episode 127, going to be about? I mean, I feel like you're really building it up here. That's Um, true. (laughs) (laughs) For what is, frankly, a fairly obvious conclusion. We are going to go on to Dead House Gates, and I I think what we've decided, correct me if I'm wrong, is that we're going to commit to doing the first three. Yeah, I think that's the plan. Malazan back-to-back, and obviously we always hope that we're going to be able to get back to doing... um, podcast a little more regularly but again we can never predict when that's going to happen but we are going to do at least the first three of this series mm-hmm. um and then and then possibly uh, go back to rhythm of war or we'll see or where another we direction from the there mm-hmm. but you can count on us for dead house gates um coming up next yep for sure um i'm with you on we definitely will read the next uh we will read the first three books in Malazan, and then we will probably do something different. But but that's too far out to project. We just don't know. At Dead House Gates, I gotta tell you, it's a little dark. Er. Oh, bring it on. <laughs> that is not a problem. Not a problem here. Um, you know, we may explore intermingling some other things in here, but again, it all depends on how much time we do or don't get. We'll mm-hmm. s- see what happens with the world before we make any further predictions you can find us at the duke and duchess podcast.com you can find us online on twitter at the dnd podcast on facebook at the dnd group or really just by searching for the duke and duchess uh book club 
on any social media or the Duke and Duchess podcast on social media. You you get past all the Kate Middleton stuff, go about three pages down, and that's us. Good night, everybody. Good night. Get him out. Get him out. Dom, I'm trying to read a poem. Come on, Wordsworth. Give it to me. So we've learned that Anamander Rake is compelled by duty. That's kind of his, on his character sheet, that's the first line of your, his backstory. <laughs> is you're, you're compelled by duty. That's yeah. your ideal, you know? Um, and he's not, he, he takes care to point out that he is not unbeatable. And in fact, here, he's like, here's a list of people who could just fuck me up if they really, really tried. Mm-hmm. You know, he's Caladan Brood, who we've met briefly, mm-hmm. um, but hasn't become a central part of the story yet. Four of his, his my assassin mages, he says, if mm-hmm. they, they could give me a run for my money. And so, someone called Selena, who was the dweller in the moon's caverns. But overall, he talks about this, the, the central problem. Hmm? That was my nickname in college. The Dweller in the Moon's Caverns. Okay. Overall, he talks about the central problem of the Tistandi, which is um, boredom. That was an anal sex joke. Motherfucker. Go back. I'll cut that out. <laughs> Tack it on at the end. <laughs> I mean, what does the moon's cavern mean to you? <laughs> I mean, that part's kind of dub anyway. It's not really necessary to point out. Nothing you have ever said in your life is dumb. <laughs> Restated. Where, okay, where should I go back to? Um, and Selena, who's the dweller in the moon. Four people who can kick my ass. Oh, okay. And Selena, who is the dweller in the moon's caverns. That's my nickname in college? That was your nickname in college. (laughs) (laughs) Now I'm lost. It was a good joke. It just went over top of my next point, and I was having trouble getting back into the point. Well, I just just thought of it on the spot. I know you did. That's why. I know you did. But we don't script things, so shit like that happens. (laughs) Or we could save it for the other podcast. (laughs) Save it for the other podcast. Do not put that at the end. Okay, fine. Do not do it. All right, fine. (laughs) Okay. Chapter 18? Chapter 18. Moving on to chapter 18. Do not do it. (laughs) Not going to do it. Okay. Not going to do it.